Thanks for joining us at Mountainside Anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you through his word. We trust that in seeing him, you will be moved to take your next step in loving God and loving others. If there's any way we can serve you, please reach out through mountainside.online. church how's everybody doing this morning it's great to be together great to open God's word together of course so uh, this first kind of Christmas out mountainside Sunday morning we are going to be talking about Jesus as king this morning and uh, as I thought about what came to mind immediately as a sports fan when I thought of king it happens to be something that it's a little bit of friction in my mind because when I think of a uh, sports fans out there, anybody's out there as a sports fan? Okay, you guys are awake out there. Um, any NBA fans out there? Yeah, I know the NCAA is better. But there is, uh, there's a particular athlete in the NBA uh, arena that is declared, at his, when he was 18, declared himself to be king. Now, I'm sure that there's some, some LeBron lovers out there I am not one of them. There's something about the fact that anybody in any arena, any, any area that declares themselves to be king of anything, that for some reason it just kind of grinds on me. Anybody else in that boat? You're probably the, also the same people who would also love to have the argument about Michael Jordan's the best ever. He is the goat. <laughs> just calling it out now. King James is no king. And today as we talk about the king, we're going to be talking about him being a king who is, he's like no other. Uh, to the point where uh, people's expectation of him as king was a little mixed up, wasn't it? They, they struggled with it. Disciples are even confused by it. Behold your king. Like it kind of comes with a level of expectation that, quite honestly, Jesus doesn't necessarily meet in so many different people's expectations level. The bar was set exceptionally high for Messiah King. And when he comes on the scene and he lives his life and then dies, he truly was a king that was like no other. Today we're going to look at two different passages of Scripture that are his first and his final public display of himself to the nation of Israel, both triumphal entries. His triumphal entry at birth, that's his first presentation of himself to the nation of Israel as Messiah King, and then his final triumphal entry, the one that we kind of tend to always talk about as being his triumphal entry, which is the last time he presents himself to the nation right before he dies just days later. We're going to look at both of these triumphal entry moments of Jesus as King and we're going to see that in both instances, the responses from the people are the same. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. Um, being the beginning of our Christmas season, uh, I want to uh, take the time, and we're actually, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to, it's going to feel a little bit like Christmas morning, and we haven't opened our presents yet, and we're just sitting before the family, and we're going to have a reading of the account of Jesus' birth from Matthew chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'd like to just read a passage. You can listen to Isaiah chapter 9. It's the passage that we read earlier uh, in the service 
It says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Boy, does that sound incredible. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he is Jesus the King over this kingdom. Uh, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is Isaiah's prophetic word about the coming of Jesus of King, birthed in Bethlehem. And here we are in Matthew chapter 2, and you can follow along as I read here down through, uh, and we'll finish uh, at the end of verse 17. So here we go. Jesus, actually, why don't you guys stand up for the reading of the word this morning? Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lambs arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of, Jeru of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. He learned from them the time when the, the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him too. After this interview with the wise men, they went their way. And the star they had been, that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, get up. Flee to Egypt with a small child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with a child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. You may be seated. There is a temptation to get to this time of the season and to read what you've probably, for those of that grown up in a Christian home especially, can it just be another time that you hear the story, the Christmas story, and it doesn't sink in as the real-life account of the Word of God putting on flesh and dwelling among us? This is the account of King Jesus' triumphal entry into earth as a baby. In this triumphal entry, in the passage that we just read, there are three specific responses that I'd like to point out. 
Let me read again for you to bring out the very first response of the people. Herod called for this private meeting of the wise men in verse 7. He learned from them when the star first appears, and he tells the wise men, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him too. What a sly guy he is. Herod was furious, verse 16, when he realized that the wise men outwitted him, and what is his whole purpose from the beginning was to kill Jesus. So he sends soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on when the report of the, first, the star's first appearance was. And then his brutal actions fulfill the prophetic word that was written about it. The first group is Herod. He is actively opposed to Jesus as king. It's the first response that we see. A group of people that are actively opposed to Jesus as king. They would take strategic steps to hinder, maybe to mock or to belittle those that are for Jesus or Jesus himself, to the point where, in this case, we see a murderous assault that happens, which for us in our culture, in our world here, seems way over the top. Like, this is just, this is crazy talk to think that a plot of murder uh, would be the end result of just being opposed to Jesus. Later, we'll talk a little bit about the opposition of Jesus that maybe we struggle with in our story. But that's the first group that we see in this passage, those that are actively opposed. But then there's a second group. In verse 3, it says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard about the fact that the the king was born. They're looking to worship the king born uh, at the time. And he's so angry about the fact that they're alluding to another king. How could there possibly be another king? I'm the king. It's interesting to me that a lot of other people in Jerusalem are also upset about this. That's interesting. That it's not just Herod. All of Jerusalem, it says, is also deeply disturbed that there's another king, that this group of magi, like it must have caused a stir, this group of magi and their entourage, whatever that looked like, comes in and they go to the, the the, to the place where the king is, people are paying attention. Word's getting out. And somehow they're looking for the Messiah to go worship the king was also deeply disturbing to all of Jerusalem. Isn't this confusing? Aren't they looking for the Messiah to be born? But in verse 4, he calls a meeting of the leading priest. Notice this. He calls a meeting of the leading priest, the leading spiritual people of the day, the teachers of religious law, and says, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? He's got no clue, no idea. There's no, there's no room in his life for any other king or even spiritual worshiper looking to God for anything. He has no idea what Scripture says about where the Messiah would be born. This second group of people, the first were actively opposed, but this second group of people Their response is passively dismissive. You have the actively opposed and the passively dismissive. It quotes the prophecy in Micah 5.2 that told them exactly where the Messiah, the king, would be born. Like, they're five miles away. And now that they've heard that it's probably happening... They're like, meh. 
completely passive, completely dismissive. How can this be? All of the religious leaders and teachers are just like, eh, they do nothing about it. Absolutely nothing. Just passively dismissive. But there's a third group here. Verse 2, we meet these magi who come from the east. Where's the newborn king of the Jews? Straight in scripture, right from the rip, they're like, listen, we're looking for the king. We're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for the anointed one. He's being born and we're going to find him. We saw his stars at Rose and have come to worship him. In verse 9, after they get interviewed by Herod, they saw the star in the east and it guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of, ahead of them and then it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were so filled with joy. They enter the house, they saw the child and his mother, Mary. And what do they do? They bow down in worship of him. They open up these treasure chests and give him gold, a gift for a king, frankincense, and myrrh. There is a third group here. The first was actively opposed, the second is passively dismissive, but the third group, their response, sacrificially worshipful. Sacrificially worshipful. You see in the passage, it says they come and they bow down. The word is a, a complete prostrateness. A, a, the, the, the one that they are before, they are nothing in comparison to the one that they are laying face down in front of. It's the ultimate posture of humility. It speaks of surrender and submission and reverence. I am nothing, King Jesus, in your presence. You are everything. But it's not, that's worship. You are worthy and I am not. But it's sacrificial worship. Think about the fact that this group considered the cost to travel all the way from the east of where they've come from, to bring treasure chests of gifts to them, to get into the presence of the king, who obviously has got some stuff going on that's shady underneath. He's trying to, trying to mix things up a little bit, and now they probably recognize the odd weirdness of what was going on in that palace that night. How is it that we, the three Gentile magi that are coming, are seeking the king that you should all be looking for, and none of you care. So now they're also probably a little on edge based on all that was discussed that night, recognizing that the cost was significant for them. They probably feared already for the response of the people or the king to them before they were even alerted by the angel that they should not go back that way. So think about this. There is a significant cost, but they don't care. They were prepared in their going to the King Jesus to go worship him. They were prepared to radically give. You've heard me say it before, but we are called in our lives to give of our time, our talent, our treasure, and our testimony. And these guys all gave all of those. Their time, the talent, who were they? Magi. Most likely, when you read different commentaries and study this out, 
Most likely they understood the readings of scripture, which would have come from Daniel, uh, about the times, the season that they were looking for. They were attentive to the timeline of God that would have been revealed in prophetic word for them to even be traveling and to take this time to go. And then God gives them this sign, this star to follow at the right time in God's perfectly prepared time that the word would put on flesh and be born in a place of Bethlehem. So they used their time, they used their talent, what God had given them, they used to decipher and discern that this was God's time, but their treasure, we see treasure, and their testimony, their actual life, their livelihood, the, the possibility of their lives being taken. They gave all of it and they said, we've considered the cost and King Jesus is worth it, we don't care, we are going. Sacrificially worshipful response to King Jesus. Behold, your king, behold, your king is born in Bethlehem, but the people, the Jewish people, they expected their king would have been born in a palace, surrounded by wealth and luxury and comfort. No one expected the king of glory to be born in poverty, surrounded by farm animals. They didn't expect their savior, king, Messiah, as he grew up to be from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter. They didn't expect the son of God, the king of glory, in his life of ministry to befriend prostitutes, to touch lepers, to love the people that religion rejected. They never imagined this king would choose as his band of brothers, his disciples, this group of uneducated fishermen, radical, political zealot, despised tax collectors, and basically just a group of troublemakers. But he's a king like no other. They didn't think this king would forgive a woman caught in adultery, show grace to a woman on the street, or at the very same time confront the hypocrisy of the religious elites. Then overturn the tables in God's temple. He's a king like no other. But there's something else they never expected from this king. The Jewish people confused about their expectations of King Jesus. They never expected the king of the Jews to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. King Jesus born, puts on flesh in the most unassuming way possible. But now this king in his second presentation of himself to the people rides in on a donkey. And at the very same time, those that are cheering for him are the outcast, the immoral, and the rejected. Old Testament prophecy speaks of this triumphal entry as well. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Matthew chapter 2. We looked at as the first triumphal entry and the responses of the people to Jesus as king. Now in John chapter 12, the final triumphal entry before the cross, 
And we will see in Scripture the responses to King Jesus. In verse 9 of John chapter 12, when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. Here we see group number one in their response to King Jesus. It's the same as the response to the first triumphal entry. Group one is actively opposed in their response to King Jesus. Actively opposed. They hate him so much that not only is there a plot already to kill Jesus, but now there's a plot in addition to that to kill the one who is close to King Jesus. So now we have a plot of murder surrounding Jesus because of how it is impacting the people. Crowds of people are flocking and talking, and there's this multiplication of of the popularity, so to speak, of Jesus at the time. It's the time of Passover, so there's already just crowds and crowds of people. And they had this plan, this plot to murder Jesus, actively opposed to Jesus. But now with the stirring of the raising of Lazarus, um, it probably changed their plans, I'm imagining a little bit, And Jesus, in this timing of choosing this triumphal entry on this day, at this time, this is also a scriptural uh, 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 foundation of, of saying this is the exact proper time that Jesus chose to line up the timing so that the Lamb of God would be killed on Passover at the end of the week. It was Jesus' timing, not man's timing. And he rides in. As King Jesus. And those that are actively opposed to him hate him so much that they're going to murder him and his friend. How is it possible to land on this murderous plot? James 1.14, you know this verse well, I think. Listen to what it says. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin's allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Now, we think about that verse, and we know that, okay, so, and depending on the the, the version maybe you memorize, you're drawn away of your lust and enticed. Like, there's this thing inside of you that pulls you in a direction, and as it's pulling you in this direction, it's, it's pulling you towards sinful actions. These guys have been plotting to murder Jesus. What can we do to get rid of this guy? What's the temptation? What's the lust? What's the the pull of their heart towards this sinful life? What is it that's inside of them? I think it's a struggle with authority, control. Like, I'm going to be in control. We are the authority. And so there's this lust of pulling their heart to the point of sinful actions. We're coming up with a plan to get rid of this guy who's getting in our way. But that sinful action eventually gives birth to death. Now, we know that it brought about, those sinful actions brought about the death of Jesus, but sadly, Jesus comes back to life, but sadly, these guys, this brings about death in their life that is eternal death, eternal separation from God. Actively opposed to King Jesus. 
verse 37 says, but despite all the miraculous signs, I'm in John 12, verse 37, despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people did not believe in him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Verse 39. But the people couldn't believe. For as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that their eyes cannot see, their hearts cannot understand, they cannot turn to me and have me heal them. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future and spoke of Messiah's glory. Many people, catch this, many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Group one was actively opposed, but now we see group two's response, again, passively dismissive. Passively dismissive. You say, well, Lyle, it sounds to me like maybe a little more kind of like the first group, that, that they're actively opposed. What, I, what, what you're reading here. Let me point out, though, this says many people did believe in him. But including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for what does Scripture say? They didn't admit it for fear. Fear of the repercussions of getting kicked out of the synagogue. And they loved human praise, so fear of man again. They loved human praise more than the praise of God. I believe this is a believing group of passively dismissive responses to Jesus as king. They want to stay in the crowd. They don't want to stand up and be counted. They're passive believers. Choosing to dismiss the truth of what they know from what he has said about himself. It reminds me of back in chapter 8 of Mark when we had that little passage, that little section where the, the, the Pharisees were coming and demanding a sign. And Jesus said, I'm not going to give you any such sign. And ultimately, he does give them a sign of the resurrection in the future. But there's that, there's that verse in uh, chapter 8, verse 13, where he says they, uh, that he left them. He gets in the boat, and he left them. And there was a line drawn in that moment where he leaves the ministry of Galilee and the Jewish people, never to go back in public ministry again. He only travels through with the disciples one more time before this time of the triumphal entry. He left them. It was like a cutting off, like you guys have heard truth and heard truth and heard truth. Some of the people in that region, I think, were passive believers, but they, and they weren't standing up. They weren't a part. They, they just were going along. They had seen over and over again, Jesus had just fed thousands of people multiple times, but they were passively dismissive of the truth that they had seen with their very own eyes. But there's a third group, the sacrificially worshipful group in this passage. On verse 12 of this, we skipped that section of the people with the palm branches, the worshipers. 
the next day, which is right after they're trying to plot to kill Jesus and Lazarus, the very next day, news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem sweeps through the city. Remember, it's Passover time. So this large crowd of Passover visitors take palm branches and they go down to the road to meet him. And in this time, they're standing up. They're, they're not a part of the crowd in a, like, we're going to kind of passively dismiss back here. No, they're standing up, bringing out palm branches, laying them down. We know from other passages, they lay their clothes down on the ground. And they're shouting. They're not afraid. They are shouting, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Now listen to the prophecy again, knowing what we just read about the passively dismissive. What was the prophetic word? It was, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. This group of people, the sacrificially worshipful, responsive people, they don't fear what it's going to cost them. There's the passively dismissive that wanted the praise of men more than the praise of God, and they were fearful that they were going to get put out of the synagogue by the Jewish leaders if they stood up and were counted for Jesus. This group doesn't care. This group is counting the cost. It could, it could hurt them. It certainly takes up their time, their testimony, the treasures of their life to go out that day and say, we are going to worship Jesus no matter what the cost. Maybe they paid attention to the prophecy that told them not to be afraid. Your king's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And here they're worshiping him. We've looked at three responses from the first and the final triumphal entries of King Jesus. Three responses. My question today is what about your response? We've covered it well enough that you probably now got a pretty good idea of those three responses. But the first response is those that are actively opposed to Jesus as king. You say, well, Lyle, if you're asking me, like, what's my response? I have a hard time believing that I would ever be in group one. How would I ever actively oppose him? Like, the examples are murderous Herod and murderous Uh, religious elites of the day. I'm not like Herod or the Pharisees. So how could I ever fit into group number one? Why, Why would I ever even think that I'd be actively opposed to him? Think about this. What was their opposition? What was the temptation of their heart that led to the sinful action that brought about death? Because I think it's the same that we all struggle with. I don't need God right now. I'm kind of fine on my own. In fact, I like having my own control, and I don't want another authority in my life. Have you struggled with God being your authority? I'm just guessing that there's probably some people in this room who have a bent of their heart to say, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm king. I know that there's times in my life that I've struggled with that. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, And he gives grace 
generously. We're all so thankful for the grace that we've received from God. But the second part of the verse is scary. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When it says that God is opposed to the proud, the picture of the opposition is if you have two armies lined up against each other in opposition. So when you fall into group, that second group there, the opposing God group, uh, or, or the second part of that verse, I should say, that God opposes the proud. If there's ever a point where you're like, you know what, I'm taking control, I'm the authority, he's not going to tell me what to do, then it's as if you're lining your army of you, one, up against the armies of God. Because it's, it clearly says God is actively opposed to those who are proud. Group number one's response to Jesus of King was exactly that, actively in opposition to him. But group number two, response number two, passively dismissive of King Jesus, passively dismissive. We saw in Matthew 2, all the people that should have been looking for the Messiah, keenly aware, were five miles away. Micah 5.2 clearly told them, Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. They're five miles away. And the Magi come and talk about it, and they're like, still like, meh right? Passively dismissive. Is it possible to be so close to Jesus, but yet so far away? This is my fear in the season of Christmas for his church. It's Christmas. We love food and gifts and all the fun things that go with it, grandma's house, and maybe we're overwhelmed with already thinking about and planning and trying to figure out all the gifts. So close, but yet so far away, dismissive of King Jesus. Maybe there's another part of this passivity that I see in that second triumphal entry story. The passivity that I see there is one that connects to my heart more deeply. When we consider the cost associated with not being passive, those people considered the cost and they said, "Mm, praise of men more than praise of God. I really don't want to be put out by my group of people. I don't want them to put me out of the synagogue. Have you ever had an experience where you're afraid of the cost to talk about him or his word for fear of those who are actively opposed. So you're struggling with your heart of being response number two, passively dismissive because you're surrounded by people who are in group number one, the actively opposed, and you're struggling counting the cost in that moment. Do I want to speak up, stand up for the truth of who he is as a believer? Or do you say, I'm passively dismissive? I've counted the cost, I've thought about it, and no, I don't want to pay that price. I know I've found myself in groups, and and fairly regularly, I'd say, in groups of people who are actively opposed to Jesus. And God help me that I would be bold 
and full of grace and truth to count the cost and say, I am going to speak truth in love, but I am not going to be passively dismissive about Jesus as king. Group number three. Response number three. What about you? Are you in the sacrificially worshipful group? The group in Matthew 2, they, they showed the highest form of worship by bowing low. James said, God gives grace, lavish grace to the humble. And they showed the ultimate posture before Jesus of surrender, submission, and reverence. They considered the cost, just like the people that are out in the streets passing their clothes on the ground ahead of Jesus, waving palm branches and, and, and literally saying, save us now, king. Save us now. When you think about your time, your talent, your treasure, and your testimony, have you counted the cost and you say, he is worth it. I will sacrificially worship King Jesus. Where are you today? In the responses. As we look at those responses in the first and the final presentation of himself, Jesus, to the people before he goes to the cross, we think about those, but there's yet to be one more triumphal entry. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 says, For at just the right time, sound familiar? For at the perfect time he was born, at the perfect time he presented himself in the triumphal entry, and at the perfect God-inspired time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. At that moment, he will be the supreme authority over all the kingdoms in the world. And the entire cosmos will be in the hands of King Jesus because he is a king like no other. The king is coming. What is your response to the king today? In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion together, where we remember what he did on the cross. Just a few days after that triumphal entry, as they were still struggling the expectation of this king was not what they expected. It just somehow was confusing. In fact, Scripture says that for the disciples, all of this didn't become clear until after he resurrected from the dead. He goes back to ascend to the right hand of God, and Scripture says now all of a sudden clarity comes to this group. But think about this. This is the king in the day as he was going through those days leading up to the cross. Think about how different this king is. No one would expect this king to stand trial for crimes that he didn't commit. He was an innocent king, but he was beaten and scourged and bruised and whipped, humiliated, hung on a cross like a slave. While hanging there, he says, Father, forgive them. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Does this sound like the king they were thinking of? They expected the king to rule and reign, but he came and died. Then the earth shook, the sky grew dark, the world lost hope. But then in that moment, remember one of the gifts, frankincense? 
as it's going up in the Holy of Holies, the veil was torn from top to bottom where Jesus is displayed as the high priest. No one would have expected that Jesus to be buried in a borrowed cave. And then right then, gift number three, myrrh is spread over the body of Jesus the king. Three days later, the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. The king is alive. He goes and sits on the right hand of the father. We've seen as he is the high priest, the suffering servant lamb of God. He is the king of kings. He's a king like no other. A very unique king that you have to decide how you will respond to today. But until he does come again, like 1 Timothy told us that he would, we remind ourselves as part of the family and the world about his sacrifice for us on the cross by taking communion. I invite you, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, or you can listen. But it's a time that we come into his presence as worshipers. We want to remember, we want to reflect, want to be reverent, but it's a time that we also recommit our lives to him. What he did with the disciples the night that he was betrayed, Paul reminds us of and gives us a structure for how we would remember this and his sacrifice together until he comes again. In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 23, For I pass unto you what I received from the Lord himself. On that night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement that was confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. Every time that you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. I want to take a moment, a moment where you'll say, okay, the word of God and the Holy Spirit have challenged us today. What is your response to King Jesus? It's a moment where I think you can humbly think through, am I in some ways actively opposed, passively dismissive of him? Do I need to make changes and confess them? Say, God, help me to change. Help me to course correct. May the Holy Spirit empower me to to, to go in the direction that you called me to go. I want to have a time where we, as the psalm said, to search my heart, O God. Know the things that are in there so that I can change them. So let's just take a couple moments of silence for you to have a reflection time. Let's pray.
Father, you tell us in your word to be still and know that you are God. To stop wrestling with you is what that passage tells us. Lord, maybe in these first couple responses that we've seen that there's been some wrestling, and I pray that, God, you would, um, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the living word of God, challenge our hearts, change us from the inside out to reveal these things that are truths about our lives, decisions that we've made, Lord, that we would uh, course correct to the path that the Holy Spirit leads us in. Lord, I thank you for Jesus today. We thank you for his sacrifice of his life, that he was truly a king like no other. No other king in the history of the world has laid his life down for the lives of every human soul in the world. That creator God was murdered by his creation so that the creation could live and have life. Lord, thank you for this gift of salvation, a gift of grace that's offered to everyone that none of us can earn. There's no amount of a thousand lifetimes of works that we could do to overcome the debt of sin. You declared that there was a price of sin was death, that all of us would die because of it, but that there was a gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So today, I thank you for the free gift that comes through Jesus' blood that was sacrificed on the cross. Thank you, as your word says, that our sins were nailed with him to the cross, and he exchanged those sins for his righteousness. Thank you for this gift of salvation, this rescuing from the bondage of sin that none of us could rescue ourselves from. Lord, I pray today that as we reflect, we remember that we would be sacrificial worshipers of you in every way. Lord, you considered the cost and thought that we were worth it. So now, God, I pray that we would consider the cost and know without a doubt you are worthy of our worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the very same way, He took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. Let's drink together. Father, thank you. Lord, I pray that as we, again, have looked in your word, that you would um, help us to remember all that you have done on our behalf. Lord, in our response to you today, Lord, may we, as Paul said in Philippians, that according to my earnest expectation and my hope, That in nothing I will be ashamed, but that with boldness always Christ will be magnified in my body, whether it's by life 
or by death. May that be the sacrificial worship or prayer and attitude of our heart toward you, God, today. Forgive us for opposing you. Forgive us for being passively dismissive. Lord, I pray that this group would would be the, 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 the family of God that comes together to be salt and light, would be a more clear image of Jesus than has ever been seen in this town and the surrounding communities and ever before. As we fall deeper in love with you, we allow your word to change us from the inside out to be who you've declared us to be. Lord, we love you and we're thankful for what Jesus did and then sacrifice on the cross. May we now, uh, from this day until the day that your triumphal re-entry happens, declare these truths, stand up for you in uh, a way that, as we've already prayed, would be completely full of grace and truth in a time that it is hard to sometimes, we, we struggle to count the cost to speak what is true sometimes. And God, our world desperately needs truth and they might dismiss it, but Lord, Give us wisdom, give us boldness to speak truth of who you are. Lord, we have an eternal hope in you, not in the things of this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.